0: Hey, Friday Night Lights fans! It's Not Only Football, Friday Night Lights, and Beyond is an episode-by-episode discussion of the hit TV series, Friday Night Lights, hosted by yours truly, Scott Porter, who played Jason Street on the show, and my two wonderful
1: co-hosts, me, Zach Guilford, a.k.a. Matt Saracen,
0: and me, May Whitman, a.k.a. someone who wasn't on the show but really, really loves it a lot. We will also bring on some special guests, answer your questions, and tell you about what's going on in our lives today. It's not only football. Friday Night Lights and Beyond is available now wherever you get your favorite podcasts.
2: Clear eyes. Full hearts. Can't Can't lose. lose.
0: everybody. Welcome to Dr. Drew Podcast. We appreciate you all being here. Keep the wind in the sails of this Corolla pirate ship, please. We can uh, keep doing this thing. At least Adam will allow me to keep doing it. So do support the people that support us. We appreciate it very much. And don't forget to check out the streaming shows. Um, they are on Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday at 2 o'clock Pacific time. At 3 o'clock Pacific time. Right? I thought there were 3, but they may They're at 3 o'clock. I've been traveling. Uh, no, they've not moved. 3 p.m. Yeah, I've been traveling so much I forget when the hell I'm doing my shows. Uh, And, of course, Adam and Drew and uh, and After Dark and whatnot, check out all this stuff. You can get everything at drdrew.com. So today we're going to talk a little mental health and psychiatry. Uh, We are bringing back our friend Eric Smith. The book we are discussing is You Are Not Alone, The NAMI Guide to Navigating Mental Health with Advice from Experts. Uh, Dr. Ken Duckworth, who we'll introduce you to in just a second, is the author. And uh, Eric, well, Eric, welcome, first of all.
1: Thank you, Doctor Drew.
0: Thank Sketch you. people, you know they. It, which, Harry, do you remember which show it was Eric was last time where he told his whole story in great detail? I think it was about a year. I you, you said Eric, we were talking off there as when I had long COVID. So it was about almost two years ago, right? Year and a half right. ago. Right. Interesting, yep. <laughs> and he was also pointing out how last time he talked to me, I was foggy and having trouble moving about. It was February 2021, uh, episode 466, but we stopped numbering them in a lot of places, so just search uh, Eric Smith Doctor Drew podcast, Thank and you. you'll uh, you'll find it. And uh, and uh, more recently, I was on this uh, <laughs> Special Forces show, which will be on Fox on January 4th, where I'm training with uh, Navy SEALs to with, with several of my friends, and uh, let's just say shit goes down. <laughs> but but Eric, do me a favor, just sketch your story, of people, so it refresh their memory.
1: Wonderful. Thank you, Dr. Drew. Uh yeah, uh, my name's Eric Smith. Very happy to be a friend of the show here. And I was, you know, uh diagnosed with severe mental illness as early mid-teens, became a drug addict, eventually dropped out of high school, uh, was arrested as a result of my mental illness, which is talked about in this book that we're gonna hit on today, written by Dr. Duckworth, You Are Not Alone and uh, did not receive any sort of treatment whatsoever while I was incarcerated. Thankfully, transferred to inpatient care that I needed from jail, Uh, received some outpatient care thereafter that I needed, and uh, fast forward to where we're at now, and I am thankful to say I've now graduated with my master's degree in social work with a cumulative 4.0 GPA. So that's really a testament to what a person can do when the right resources are in place to help someone with mental illness and related disorders. And
0: My my favorite part of your story is the vivid part where you're going to Quantico, banging on their door every day, telling them all the special information that you have for them and you can't understand why they won't
1: let you in and listen to you. Yeah, asterisk on that. So yeah, it. I did not go all the way to Quantico. It was the San Antonio FBI office. Okay, all so. right.
0: I beg your pardon. Some <laughs> yeah, Quantico-esque.
1: But... Yeah, the 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 story is correct just the location was different. But man, uh, yeah, that was wild. I can I can I can briefly hit on that in like less than a minute so that people know what I'm talking about. So yeah, I was quite out of my ma- mind as a result of uh, untreated uh, severe mental illness, showed up at the FBI offices here in San Antonio, my uh my car uh was trying to gain access to the secure lot at the FBI uh, building. They told me I couldn't get in. I thought that I would be able to no matter what, so I kind of pressed the gas down on my car. I didn't floor it. But it was enough to make contact with the thing that prevents cars from coming in. And boy, am I lucky I didn't make the news for, uh, uh, you know, someone trying to gain entry to a lot who was, you know, shot, perhaps justifiably so, uh, by the FBI. So luckily, they knew who I was. They knew I needed treatment. They didn't react with violence or we'd be having a different conversation probably without me involved here on this earth.
0: It's nice that they did that. You don't always get that reaction from law enforcement. I've seen some bad things go down, unfortunately. Uh, They're not necessarily trained in that. So that's good. And I, I want you to know, I was thinking about you uh, last week because I have seen, and we'll get, I'll ask Dr. Duckworth about this when, when we get him in here, but I've seen a ton of paranoid psychosis from cannabis use. The, the power, the strength of the cannabis that people are using right now, I'm getting lo- particularly complaints from family members where there's a lot of rigid, paranoid, almost domestic abuse, uh, coming out of uh, these cannabis users mouths towards their family uh, and there's a real characteristic thing they say is you're not listening you're not listening and then they talk over everybody and then they don't listen <laughs> and are very very angry and and uh, paranoid and sometimes the paranoia is very much like what what you're describing where they claim to have special insights and all kinds of things so there's now a new drug on the on the horizon that's creating a similar syndrome were you taking methamphetamine at the
1: time I did not really have a problematic relationship with that. I, I did have a problematic relationship with cocaine, but to be very clear, uh, during the time of like my psychosis and the anosognosia taking over and all of that, yeah. that was from two thousand eight, two thousand nine, and it finally got under control through twenty twelve. So I had been sober by that time.
0: Uh, that's right. I so forgot. I, that part. I did. Yeah.
1: But 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 factual. So you're remembering I did have an issue with drugs earlier in life. Yeah. In, in fact. Right.
0: Well, let's bring Dr. Duckworth in. Dr. Duckworth is, is the chief medical officer for the National Alliance on Mental Illness, NAMI. He's worked with NAMI since 2003. Ken is board certified in uh, adult and child psychiatry, and adolescent psychiatry. He is an assistant professor of psychiatry at Harvard Medical School. And he was previously acting commissioner and medical director at the Massachusetts Department of Mental Health. Ken, welcome to the program.
2: Thank you so much, Dr. Drew. Congratulations
0: on the book. Uh Let's let's quickly put out there that you can get, I assume, wherever you buy books. You are not alone. Wherever
2: you buy books, NAMI has the copyright. This is a love gift. All the royalties go back to this mission. And what's unusual about the book is that real people use their names and share what they have learned. So the book is trying to both create new experts, but also to reduce the shame and isolation that causes so many terrible outcomes associated with mental health conditions,
0: You know, as I think about this book, I I ran headlong this weekend into the cumbersome nature of our mental health services, particularly Mm. here in California. So let me just tell you this story and you can sort of comment then. If you have money, there are places you can go around the country that uh, sort of will give you all the care you need. And they're, even those places are too busy, I'm sure. I, I haven't sent someone to one in a long time. But you, it's out-of-pocket cash, terribly expensive, but care is amazing. There are only about five of those, really, in the country that really do the right job. Um, but they're out there. And no one can afford them. So everybody else is sort of dependent on the system that, you know, in this state, a lot of it is MediCal or Medicaid around the country, Medicare, private insurance – and or just county funds. It, it's just very limited resources available for mental health, which is my been a grave concern of mine for a long time. But the that, that has always – that has been an issue for as long as I've been a physician. But more recently, we have a – I don't know how to describe this – where the facilities have become warehouses for very low-functioning or very severely ill people who are – sort of milled through for a couple of days and sort of sent back out. Uh, My story this weekend was a patient that's high functioning, not actively suicidal, but passively so, in a lot of distress, went to a freestanding psychiatric facility, was told that yeah, you could come in. They had to work them up for 8 hours or so while they checked everything through. The family kept saying, "No, we'll pay for this, don't worry." There's no there was no facility for that. We have to get your insurance to approve this first. We don't <laughs> know anything about you paying for your services. We can't do that here. You have to get your insurance first. Uh and then they, you know, we can't let We have a doctor in mind we want to see, our height referred to. Mm, I don't think you can see that doctor. Maybe you'll see somebody in about 24 to 48 hours. Somebody will see you, but probably not that doctor you want. Okay, so we're going to go to another facility. So this family truts down the street to another facility that's no longer freestanding. It's attached to a a medical facility. And the only way to be admitted to a psychiatric facility— that's attached to a medical unit is through the ER. So now you're in the ER for 12 hours, and or longer, sit, or longer. You sit in the ER for 12, 24 hours. Then you, then finally, he was admitted, severely low functioning, mostly drug addicted, very um, like violent and a lot of yelling, a lot of really sort of terrible symptomatology for the for the individuals involved. But for this poor guy, he now was no sleep for two days was not going to see a psychiatrist for another 24 hours, uh, maybe would see an internist in, within 12 hours, had only seen nursing, and they had really nothing to offer him. He's now more suicidal and acute stress disorder on top of that. Yeah. So that was the functioning of a mental, couple of mental health facilities here in California. I, I'll let you kind of take it from there. What, what do we do with this? This just this quality of our system?
2: First of all, there is no system. There's a chaotic group of underfunded, organically transient services. Yes. Which can be evolving or cut at any time. Yes. When I was a commissioner of mental health, Dr. Drew, in Massachusetts during a recession, nobody wanted to do it because we knew they were going to make cuts. Before I sat down on my first day, before I drank my first Dunkin' Donuts, that's what we do here in Boston. <laughs> uh, they had passed out an org chart not, that not eliminated best,
0: best Eaten. No Best Eaten. No, nah, <laughs> no,
2: no way. Never touch this stuff. Never touch this stuff. Uh, they had eliminated the Department of Mental Health in an org chart. Uh, so what they were going to do is cut, you know, this world famous Department of Mental Health and eliminate it, and. The recession in Vermont, they were taking away dental services. The recession in New Hampshire, they were cutting hospital days. Now, what you see is it's a chaotic cluster of services with different and variable funding streams. There is no system. And what you have to do is keep fighting, both as an advocate larger and as an individual. And don't wait for the services to get better. Because they're not going to get better. Mm. Keep going. Wow.
0: And, and are there sort of? I mean, this weekend I was I was shocked what this family went through. Uh, and, and I I would say the one there's a piece in here that I I want to kind of uh, help people understand, and, and I would like you to dial it in with a little more specificity, which is that in psychiatry, psychiatry doesn't function the way acute care medicine does. You care medicine. You walk in the ER. You see a nurse, see a doctor. Psychiatry. There's no requirement for 24 hours, and and usually the reason that it's set up that way is it, that's okay. So people have to get used to the idea that just get into the system and and then know that you will be seen. But it, it it does take longer than the medical system. Is that okay in your mind? And and is that a reasonable piece of advice?
2: That's a violation of mental health parity. Whatever they're doing for people with broken legs, they be, should be doing for people with suicidal thoughts. We have to get the way where the care is equivalent on both sides of the house. Well, I, I and we're listen, not there I, yet.
0: We're not. I, I've heard that. I, you know, I ran a large addiction recovery program for mm-hmm. 25 years, and I've I've heard that that call for parity. Yeah. I've, I've been through three parity acts. Yes, and each one was as ridiculous as the one before. It got us nowhere. Mm -hmm. And the 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 one ingredient that they always needed that they they didn't ever put into this parody was that the the services should be determined by the opinion of the attending physician.
2: Right. Period. And the payment should meet the market. Mm -hmm. There are no private practice cardiologists doing ablations. For $56,000 cash, right? it's unimaginable. The right. payment is adequate. right? The structure is adequate for acute medicine. And we haven't accomplished that in mental health and addiction.
0: It, 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 in my estimation, it's the insurance companies that have really gotten in the way of it. Again, taking the position that they, the, the resource provider, really determines what the patient needs, not the physician. And and they, they're in that position. And as long as they're in that position, it's going to continue to be a problem.
2: You got to fight. So there, you had a big lawsuit in California, a parity lawsuit. I don't know the outcome of that in terms of how it's trans, trickled down or translated. Your local NAMI is undoubtedly trying to fight with the health insurance companies, the local attorney general to get his services as close to reasonable as possible. Another truth is that you meet people like Eric, and there's 130 of them in the book who figured a path. Mm. Even with this disorganized, fragmented mess of a system, there are a lot of resilient people. And one of my hopes in the book was that people could learn from them. I mean, Eric happened to get the right care at the right time, but his parents did a beautiful job of advocating for him. And uh, advocacy within a family system is also really valuable.
0: Yes, I, I completely agree. And and an enlightened legal system is very yes. helpful. And that's one of the things that Eric was uh, the beneficiary of.
2: Yes. Right. Yeah, Eric's a wonderful treasure in the book. And I was very grateful for him um, because he illustrates something that's real, which is that sometimes court order treatment is necessary. Yeah. And uh, when Eric said that the most coercive thing he had in his life was not coercive treatment, court order treatment uh, that he had to attend to, uh, it was untreated psychosis was the most coercive thing. Of course. When he said that, I said, that is so true. Yeah. And there are people under bridges all across America who might tell you that. Now, most people don't require that. But the point is there should be every gear in the gearbox. There should be every tool in the toolbox. And it's terrific that Eric is going to become a social worker and become part of the solution, right? I mean, it's fantastic. Yeah, And I found his story incredibly moving and beautiful.
0: Eric, you want to talk a little bit about assisted outpatient treatment?
1: Yeah, sure thing. So, uh, And also thank you for your kind thoughts from the both of you. Uh, Yeah. So assisted outpatient treatment, that's a kind of a complex issue to break down in a few minutes, but it's like this. So I, speaking speaking anecdotally, to give people this sort of personal connection to how AOT affects a person, because it, it really did affect me and save my life. I was arrested, as I said earlier, as a result of severe mental illness, trespassing at my parents' house, and my then most recent psychiatrist, who had fired me as a patient because I was difficult, Uh, And in his defense, I was. Of course, someone who's in the midst of psychosis and, you know, all the symptomatic is difficult. Uh, That comes with the territory of the type of uh, mania and bipolar I was experiencing and psychosis. So at the time, my parents were told by that psychiatrist that the best bet that I could possibly have uh, would be if I were arrested for a low-level offense. And then if before I was released from jail a hospital bed at the state hospital would open up, and then hopefully, if I could be stabilized there, that I could then enter into assisted outpatient treatment as immediate step-down care. Now, that's a lot of things to have to, like the stars Mm -hmm. have to align according to this psychiatrist, and I want to be very clear, this was not a professional that had, you know, just earned their degree. He'd been doing this for decades, so he knew the system, he knew what would work, what wouldn't work. And the fact that a psychiatrist would have to tell the parents of someone like me in psychosis in the depths of despair, you know, the best bet would be if if you could get arrested for a low level offense, that that's lunacy. That that's perhaps more more psychotic than the psychosis I was experiencing. Mm. And so, anyhow, I, I hey, do let get me just say, life.
0: Eric. Unfortunately, I've said that to families three hundred times, five hundred times because I, what I will tell them is because they're busily – these are all drug situations, and they're busily enabling them and rescuing them from the legal system. And I'm always saying if they get arrested and you get in front of an enlightened judge, that will save their life.
1: And, and that's the point. You just mentioned this enlightened judge, and I do want to mention Judge Oscar Kazin by name because he was uh, someone I viewed largely as the figurehead of my assisted outpatient treatment uh, treatment team. And he got it. Uh, he, he understood. Eric is not a criminal. Eric is someone who desperately needs uh, care right now for you know this crisis psychosis situation he's going through. And then let's learn who Eric the person is after we stabilize him. We're not going to judge him at his worst. We're going to help him become a healthy individual and recognize that uh, you know the things that are coming out of my mouth, it's the psychosis talking. when when i'm saying no i don't want treatment no uh, you know leave me alone in my head i'm thinking a number of things including you know i've got the the blood of christ within me and 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 i can't give blood to anyone else or i don't i can't give my blood elsewhere because you know it's got secret things in it from the government so i'm voicing all this opposition to treatment and absent psychosis you know if someone sort of is capable of rational thought and rational choice and they're saying i don't want treatment leave them alone don't give them treatment but there's something qualitatively different about the presence of psychosis, when someone can't perceive what's going on, can't perceive reality. And I am thankful beyond words that someone stepped in and was like, look, that's the psychosis talking. Let's get him stabilized and see what he has to say. And when I was stabilized, I did not want to go back to being psychotic. I was saved from that by the type of treatment and care that I got. And it's largely with the thanks of the uh, empathetic judge, Judge Oscar Kazin, holding a treatment team accountable Holding me accountable to the team, and so on, mm-hmm. and um, you know, in this in this book that we're talking about, you were not alone. I uh, I I, I want to read just this few sentences here because this sort of sums this sums that up. Thusly, it says this, and this is uh, me quoted in just one of the few times I'm quoted in the book. I say this: I'm in jail, arrested for trespassing. At times, I interacted with compassionate and empathetic police officers. Other times, I interacted with officers who threatened to harm me. I want to be very clear here that this is less the fault of the officers and more of an indictment against the way society handles putting people with a mental illness into the criminal justice system. If you task a police officer with handling people going through a severe mental illness crisis, they're being tasked to do things outside of their expertise. Yep. Don't expect that to look the way it would with a psychiatrist and a social worker. I also want to clarify here the empathetic judge I mentioned, but that's the whole point because I'm, I'm in the system much like many other people. Who need treatment and care and we're interacting with people who are trained to basically uh, you know maintain power and control over criminals yeah i'm not here yelling defund the police and i'm also not here saying it's totally uh not their fault i'm saying that we've got a number of things to address one of which is the criminal justice system should not be a de facto provider of mental health care while well, i qualify that by saying of course police should be trained in matters of mental illness for right. obvious reasons.
0: So, Ken, this is the part that that overwhelms me is, you know, what what can we do? Mm-hmm. Ever since, you know, the state systems have been dismantled, there's been nothing other than nursing homes, jails, and the streets to, to deal with mental illness. Do, do we need a full scale, or is that even realistic or... Ever going to be a possibility of full scale revamping the state mental health system. And let me just remind people the reason it's up to the states is because the Constitution does not provide for the federal government to do this. So it's been, it's fallen to the states. And the states were dismantled uh, really in 1963 by the Community Mental Health Act. And there are many other things since then.
2: Uh, what do we do? Every gear is inadequate. There's not enough child psychiatrists, there's not enough Dr. Drews. There's not enough Judge Kazans. There's not enough inpatient psychiatric beds. Right. Every single gear is inadequate. So we built a new state hospital in Massachusetts, a 400 million bond, was put together a tremendous amount of work, a decade of work, but it can be done. And so again, that doesn't recreate hundreds and hundreds of new beds. I think it's about 150 beds. It's a start. Mm. And so Eric's point, is very well taken. The criminal justice system is downstream. National NAMI just advocated for a 988 mental health crisis number. So the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline used to be 911 variant, and now it's 988, which is a special mental health number, three numbers, that you can get diverted to mental health as opposed to a police response. We still have to build a mobile crisis system. It only is, is exists in a patchwork of communities across America. If you live in Georgia, if you live in Eugene, Oregon, if you live in Dallas, you'll get thoughtful, compassionate, culturally responsive care. But in a lot of places, you still don't get that. So we're envisioning a movement where you get, we call it reimagined crisis care at NAMI. And so the idea is build a mental health system so that people don't end up going to jail like Eric went through.
0: Uh, Ken, can you sketch
2: for us some of the other cases that we will learn about by reading the book? Ah, there's so many. So the basic premise of the book, Dr. Drew, is that we've forgotten to ask real people what has helped them. There's all these experts that we have forgotten to listen to. How do families communicate? How do families connect? How do people overcome opiate addiction? What is the role of faith or peer support? or serving another person, or finding the right psychotherapy. Each story is different. There's 11 self-identified race and ethnicities. One woman was from the Punjab community and said, Ken, there's no one like me in any mental health book in America. I want you to list my middle name because everyone in the Punjab community who's female has my middle name, Mm. they will know. There's millions of us and we're not in mental health books. So the idea was to create a representative group of people, 38 different states, 25 religious affiliation, 50 occupations, who are just like us, who are living with mental health conditions, but they've learned something. I can tell you a story or two if you'd like. Yeah, let's do it. All right. So no psychiatrist in the history of America would have offered this idea to a woman who told me the following story. She had bipolar disorder, two young children, and plates were six feet high in her kitchen. No mental health practitioner would come up with the idea that she got from a support group, which was two words that changed her life, paper plates, that don't bother attending to your kitchen, take care of your children, don't try to run your household, give up on that. No licensed professional in the history of mental health would have said, paper plates, abandon running your household, focus on your children. And that's kind of wisdom that people found in the book over and over again. How to let go of your expectations of your child to foster a more loving relationship.
0: Here's something you may not know. According to the Kaiser Family Foundation, 25% of Americans live more than an hour from a tier one or tier two trauma center. If you're one of those 83 million people, have you thought about what kind of immediate help is available should you need it and what might it cost? Well, there's an easy way to stress less and free yourself from this financial worry. An AirMedCare Network membership. AirMedCare Network's participating providers transport critically ill or injured patients in a fully equipped, state-of-the-art helicopter. But being an AirMedCare Network member brings... Not just expert care, but financial peace of mind. Because you will have no out-of-pocket expenses when flown by an AMCN provider. You can become a member for just $99 a year, and your entire household is covered. Right now, for the Dr. Drew Podcast listeners, you get up to an $80 MasterCard or Amazon e-gift card my goodness. When you join, just go to AMCN and use that offer code Drew. Protect your family and your finances. Visit airmedcarenetwork.com forward slash Drew today.
2: Right. How not to, um, you know, participate in enabling someone around their addiction, right? There's so many real people and because they're real people, The book is radical because it's not a book of anonymous composite people where every doctor book says no one in this book resembles a real person. So I decided to flip that on its head. I've met hundreds of real people who are also experts, and Eric Smith is one of them. He's a real man. He lives in San Antonio. I'm sure you could contact him, and he could offer you some insight that a professional might not. I don't know a professional who's experienced AOT and benefited from it. Eric's an example of an expert, that I'm trying to make more available across the country.
0: Yeah, you quickly scrolled through a number of sort of uh, features that are highlighted in these cases, and they almost all jumped out at me as things that I have learned. I'm, I'm not a psychiatrist, right? I'm an internist. but right. worked in a psychiatric hospital for 35 years, and there are there is certain phenomenologies that seem to be very pertinent to— human thriving and yeah. recovering from mental illness so you said right. faith whatever that means to somebody yes yeah service to others you mentioned yes. so meaning making you know and, and the corollary yes. of service is relationships and then peer support and you mentioned family yes. uh which probably more important than anything the one thing I always say about peer support is there just aren't enough professionals of on earth and there's not enough money in the coffers to give the kind of support that somebody with mental yes. illness needs you know you, you need hours and hours and hours of just support and somebody who gives a shit and just you know and to and the power of me too i understand me too that happened to me and yeah. and be, and Mer- eric maybe you can speak to the power of being of service i i think if almost anybody with any major life event is happy to help and be of service to other
1: people. Very much so, Dr. Drew, and and really also building upon what you and Dr. Duckworth here are talking about. There, there really is just immense value to the way Dr. Duckworth approached writing and putting this book together for letting people like me tell our stories of what helped to find, yeah. you know, what tools are there? What tools? So It's, it's like did. a book
0: it's, of peer support kind of in a weird right, way. Right. Yeah. And,
1: and yeah. What, what what he didn't do is also extreme. I'm extremely appreciative for And What he didn't do is set out to prove something did or didn't work based on some personal agenda. He was like, look, I'm going to contact these very real people, let them tell their very real stories. And and see what, what is there and what needs to be done. And, and on the other side of things, I also want to mention here, um, there's a lot of value in someone like me who's you know not well known. I'm not a celebrity, just sort of sharing my journey because I've talked with folks around the country, and there are people out there, many, who want to hear stories from real people oh, yeah. who don't know. Now I also I also want to play devil's advocate here and say on the other side of things, I find just as one example, like Selena Gomez, I'm a huge fan of her specifically yeah. with what she does in the mental health yeah. and mental illness spaces. I She's agree. very authentic. Yep. She shares her journey. And I, I, I am motivated and inspired by things like that, just as I'm motivated and inspired by people who are just like me, like yeah. the everyday Joe. Yeah. So the fact that this book is everyday Joe's, Jane's, however you want to phrase it, We're just sharing our stories, and Dr. Duckworth is letting us say what helped. He's not there trying to say, you know, this will or won't work, and I'll only find people that will support my whatever my course is.
0: Ken, you want to follow on that?
1: And talking to 130 people, it's all
2: there. Someone whose life was saved by shock treatment, someone who had cognitive damage from shock treatment, someone who was misdiagnosed for a decade before she found out that she had borderline personality disorder, Mm. somebody who founded a company to treat people with OCD because a psychologist told him to move away from his family. The whole point of the book is these are real people. And if you've been misdiagnosed or you've engaged in the culture clash, which I'm sure you're an expert in, Dr. Drew, in mental health, we tell people to get sober before they come back to mental health. And in addiction, it can happen. I'm sure you've heard this. Throw away your lithium. That's a chemical dependency. People told me those stories. And I tried to illustrate that in the chapter on co-occurring disorders, that people are facing this culture clash and we're moving forward towards integrating these. But this is just one true thing that people are contending with. People have to find a way to get care for both things at once.
0: You you made me think about some of um, the—I'm not sure I have the right—again, I have a little jet-lagged here. I was in North Africa a week ago, and I'm still sort of out of it. But but, uh, the treatment shortcomings, I guess I would say, where people are treated somewhat perfunctorily— and are not given thoughtful care i'm thinking of a woman you probably know her she had severe ocd to the point where she would spend eight hours just going through rituals and could not get out of her bathroom essentially and then became severely suicidal Mm -hmm. and was given you know sort of usual pharmacotherapy and supportive psychotherapy and nothing 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 and it wasn't until she went down to Menninger's and they did systematic um, re- uh, exposure therapy. And yes. N- and now she's a therapist. Yes, she there's only
2: w- one gold standard psychotherapy <laughs> yeah. for OCD. Yeah. There's only one. Yeah. And people don't know about it. And of course, it was easy to find a man. Who found that because he had stumbled in the woods for a, a decade.
0: Jesus. Is that one of the misdiagnosis things or mistreatment? That's one. Or, of yeah. He's in
2: the – Well, there's a chapter called The Paradox of Diagnosis, yeah. which is it's useful to know your diagnosis, but you are not your diagnosis. Right. And let's be honest, the diagnosis is based on subjective criteria that we don't have biological markers in the mental health and addiction space and that's a challenge for us.
0: Eric do, do I have we talked about the OCD is there an overlap between you and me and uh, the OCD world?
1: So there is although we haven't talked about it but based on your expertise I am not surprised that you knew that it could be there. Um I still have I still have what I would call not like life altering OCD but I do still check and rethink recheck things quite a bit and I've been able to Uh, make some progress by changing some of my habits like I used to Uh, make sure like my psych meds were in the, you know, the Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, the thing that you would look at.
0: Whatever you're describing can only be sort of a version of what I do. So don't worry, you're not alone. But but it raises an important point. And by the way, there's a great, one of the best patient-centered groups I know of other than NAMI is the International Obsessive Compulsive Disorder Federation, iocdf.org. If you have any of these symptoms that are affecting your functioning, check out that website. They've got so, it's all patient centered and peer support and fantastic, but but it um, but it raises a question for me that I want Dr. Duckworth to address, which is the pejorative nature with which we approach these diagnostic labels. The reality is, and as you know, as I was thinking about your OCD and mine, Eric it can be an asset there's a reason we have these evolutionary quirks in certain circumstances they're ma- if if you if if i were a fighter pilot in a um you know in the middle of us in the south pacific or something i hope i had a narcissistic personality and maybe some alcohol alcoholism in my genetics i i would be a much better fighter pilot that would i would survive better And so there's all these things have assets and liabilities, and we label them as though they're all liability, and it drives me insane, particularly terms like borderline and narcissism, these things that that are kind of come up in this conversation, and OCD even. So, Dr. Duckworth.
2: We wouldn't have art or half of the creative outputs that we've created as a species without diversity and mental health. I mean, most artists have had some brush with something well described by Kay Jameson, in her beautiful book, Touched With Fire. But also John Nash invented game theory while living with schizophrenia. Uh, you know, the invention of the electronic ticket was a gentleman who kept losing his tickets, who had ADHD, on and on and on. So the idea is we've ignored people's strengths yeah, while we've been so afraid of their pathology or yeah. their illness experience. And one of my hopes in the book was to bring out some of the amazing qualities that people have. So I've met people like this hundreds of times, as have you. And the joy of the book was to bring it to light. People should know who Eric Smith is. I'm going to make him a celebrity.
0: <laughs> and, and, and so yeah, I've been, I've been trying to. Just I know. You know the but, two of us
2: the, were the two blockers for you, Eric. You have the wall. They- but, yeah, but Eric, you, you won't make a
0: mistake in your medication, and when you're doing your studies for social work, you will be on top of things. You'll be extra compulsive. And 4. by the way, and by when you're a clinician, OCD is really helpful because you always doubt yourself, check yourself, go back over things. It's very helpful when you're taking care of patients. So
1: well I, I appreciate the words of wisdom can I I can I just you know Pat Dr. Duckworth here on the back a bit as well because look the way that we're talking about this book right now let, let's let's identify here that USA today named this a best-selling book Amazon it reached as high as from what I saw 25 That's number right. 25 out of the entire. Uh, library out of, of the books. four million books that are out yeah. there. Yeah, it was a good yeah, day. No, so they've got more than thirty million books in their library. When I yeah. check, so if we're wondering, like, will this book connect with people? It does, perhaps, better so than any other book in this space that I can think of in in, in history. Like Dr. Drew, we had talked about sometime over the past few years. Typically, this type, you know, content about mental health or mental illness, it sticks with a certain audience, but it usually doesn't get the kind of traction that That's this right. book did get. That's right. You're right. Getting. Well, it's because
0: it's stories, and and people learn from stories, and and that's what we you know. And by the way, uh, when you're in your clinical training, and Dr. Duckworth and I, when we were in our clinical training, cases are stories. It's we that's how we learn. We watch these cases, and we examine the cases, and we see the natural history and the treatment response to cases, and it stays with us much better than almost anything else. Uh, there's two other things. Ken, I want to get to—let me do this one first. You in, Back to our list of common uh, sort of phenomena in mental illness in terms of improving, uh, you you said the phrase, letting go. Uh, and I, I wondered if you could sort of sp- dig that out a little more. Because in my world, letting go is uh, admitting powerlessness, that kind of thing. Mm. And, and mm. I did notice that— uh, there's a bigger category here of people with mental illness sort of feeling like they're carrying the world on their shoulders a bit. Mm. That's just sort of a common experience. And mm. letting go in one way or another and having faith that the world won't run off its axis mm. seems to be an important part of yes. the recovery process. So I'll let you talk about that.
2: I interviewed a man from Montana who, uh, in a chapter called Themes of Recovery, so I asked 80 people, what does recovery mean to you? What is... like Open-ended question. His quote was quite stunning to me. It's a man who's lived with voices, uh, schizophrenia. He's on the best antipsychotic known to man, FDA approved for treatment resistant psychosis, clozapine. He continues to have severe voices. And he said, it took me a very long time. But once I accepted, and then he pauses, really accepted that I was going to hear voices every day the rest of my life. I could take a pause and realize that I have a nice family. I have a best friend. I'm a Meals on Wheels community guru. All these little old ladies that I drop food off to love me. But I was fighting this experience. Again, that's one man's take on it. But for him, the linchpin of recovery is acceptance. That's not necessarily true for everyone. But for people who haven't responded to the treatment, and you and I both know that these treatments don't work for everyone. That was the key for him. Yeah. And so, you know, again like a beautiful expression of something that a lot of clinicians don't really talk about much, right? Like yeah, oh, getting no, never. to peace, getting yeah. to peace. Yeah. With the experience of the symptoms. Now, still working the problem, right? If there was a new medicine that came out that was better than clozapine, he'd be on it. Yeah. In Montana, he'd find a way. Because he's that kind of person.
0: Yeah, I I became very interested, you know, in my work with drug addicts in being clear about what we were trying to do. Uh, mm-hmm. At least what my program was trying to do. It, it's not for everybody, you know. Again, not every you got the right treatment plan for mm-hmm. the right kind of patient. But for me, I was most interested in restoring th- what I call thriving and uh, that an acceptance and letting go does seem to be an important part of that that f- what i also call full recovery that, that you may not mm-hmm. have complete symptom resolution your your disease didn't go away right. uh, it may be quite active in some fashion but you can still thrive That's right. uh, and and that that's something that i don't think i don't think this healthy people without mental illness think enough about right. that frankly
2: living with Right, living with, and people live with chronic illnesses every day in America. Yep. Right. Yep. And depression recurs in fifty percent of the people who have one episode. Living with that, anticipating it, preventing it, understanding your patterns, finding love or connection or giving to others or faith, whatever it is. There it
0: is. Those same topics. There it is. We mentioned a while ago. Yeah,
2: that's my favorite chapter in the whole book. Is themes of recovery because people told me. How do they understand it all for them? Mm.
0: And it's usually, in my experience, again, this is another interesting part of this. You know, for some people, it's. I was talking to Tulsi Gabbard the other day, and she was talking oh. about her sort of thriving, and she said, "Well, for me, it's I have to set aside time every day to meditate or whatever, pray, mm-hmm. or prayers, or thirty yes. minutes every day." And I, I thought, mm, I don't think that would work for me. <laughs> I think, mm-hmm. I think my thing is much more interpersonal, uh, and I would have mm-hmm. to expend. Time being of service, or, or empathizing with somebody mm-hmm. else, or you know, seeing myself through a new pair of glasses, meaning through the eyes mm-hmm. of another person. Yes. So, so, so these things are not uh, strictly speaking universal, they're universal themes, but they're they can be dialed into your specific e- efficiencies.
2: Hey, meditation worked for this person. Yeah. But yeah. meditation and medication, yeah. was the key for this person. Yeah. Yeah. And DBT skills were the linchpin for this person because they can observe their negative thoughts float by. Yeah. Because they did dialectical behavior therapy training. So the idea is you can find a pathway. That's why on the cover, there's a little pathway. Right? It's a journey. Yeah. Right. And it's different for everyone, but we can also learn from each I, other. I think that's a
0: really important thing because people, you know, are always full of advice for one another. I had CBT. I feel so much better. You should do CBT. It was like, maybe, right. maybe. A really skilled maybe. clinician has to decide what's likely to be effective for you. I have two other sort of unrelated things I want to quickly ask. One was what I brought up with Eric earlier. Are you seeing all this cannabis psychosis that I'm seeing? Is yeah. It?
2: This is not your father's marijuana. Yeah. And be careful about fentanyl, you know, a hundred thousand oh, p- overdose please. deaths last year. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's a staggering problem. Yeah. And uh, there's very good evidence that if you family, I have a family history of psychosis, as I do, my father had bipolar disorder, became psychotic periodically. That's why, you know, I'm comfortable in this space. Right. I did a lot of psychotherapy to understand my own family. The fact that I have that risk if I told my kids when they were 13, 14, 15, and 16, early use of psychosis really raises your risk. Of, of meds,
0: of the drugs, of, of drugs.
2: Of drugs. Yeah. Early risk, early use of marijuana raises your risk for psychosis because we have a family history of psychosis. Like that is a key thing. It's not the only thing. The other thing about that, Dr. Drew, is you got to be able to talk about your family history. You can't hide if your uncle died by suicide or a person lived in a state psychiatric hospital for 30 years, like your heart health history, like your addiction history, like your cancer history, it should just be part right. of the conversation. Normalize this. These are very common human experiences.
0: I'm I'm also looking for right now for a book. You've got to know this guy, and I, I haven't thought of him in a long time. Uh, I had a Oh, What the heck? He wrote a book about his his family history of of uh, psychotic illness, uh, and I know you're going to know this guy if I can find the name of the book. But he um, had a very similar thought about it, where he was he didn't realize that he actually went into mental health because of you know the fact that his dad was. Can you hosp- give me anything more? I'll help I, you. Look. I can't. We, we've talked to him here. It's been a long time. Uh, um, just look up. You know. Richard Hill is the first name that comes up. No, Okay. it was years ago. It was probably ten years ago, and and uh, he, his dad, you know, jumped off the roof of their house, and Mm. the the, was it was back in the days when no one talked about what this was. It was very confusing to the family, and he would go away for long periods of time. Overwhelming
2: and and confusing, exactly. Yeah,
0: and uh, and and, I
2: never felt so alone as when I was visiting my dad at a state hospital, now closed, of course. Oh, you've. Um, you've Then I'd be in the parking lot. I'd be in the parking lot and I think there's no one on earth I can talk to about this. Yes. I feel so alone. And the beauty of the entire endeavor is that Nami has changed that entire conversation. TAC, the Trevor Project, you know, Mental Health America, DBSA. We can talk about this. This is a conversation that you can have. You don't have to be in such fear and isolation.
0: Well, that that's the part I want you to get that's what's gonna be my next. Question was: to Talk to us about NAMI. What what people should get from, want from NAMI, get from NAMI. What they can do for patients. What's going on with NAMI these days?
2: NAMI has seven hundred affiliates across America. Wherever you are, there's a group of people who want to support you, whether you're an individual with lived experience or a family member, whether you want to teach middle schoolers or coach doctors on uh, understanding the first person experience. NAMI just got a $30 million grant from Mackenzie Scott. So that means we're going to be around for a long time. But even before then, donations are up. Support is up. People are talking about mental health. It's the largest mental health organization in the country, ergo the world. And I'm very honored to be the doctor for NAMI. It's a full circle in my own little life. People I talk to are my family, right, along the way. It's a great privilege for me. And meeting people like Eric in this book was the joy of a lifetime because I knew NAMI had a book. 43 years had been an accumulating compound interest, Dr. Drew. No books, no books, the largest mental health team in America. And I so wanted to interview the woman who invented Family to Family. I wanted to interview the woman who invented the peer-to-peer program. I interviewed a woman who was at the first NAMI convention in 1979. Mm. She was 100 years old. She huh. has since passed away. Wow. She was the first person I interviewed, because I'm like, hey, wait a minute, Eleanor Owen's 100. So the day after I got the contract uh, to write the book, I thought, I'm going to reach out to Eleanor Owen. What was it like when you started this movement? Hmm. People felt ashamed and blamed by psychiatrists. That's the origin story. And now we've moved into this movement where we're the largest group of people with mental health conditions and those who love them.
0: Have you uh, read Jeff Lieberman's book, uh Shrink? Yes, of course. So good about the history of psychiatry. I I wasn't aware of how—I kind of lived it because when I got to the psychiatric hospital in 1984— All the psychoanalysts were still there and the new young freshly minted psychiatrist with the uh, you know, a new new way of doing things right. were sort of flooding in. It was and and at this same facility was sort of a museum of psychiatry, a lot of yes. leftover psychosurgery patients and yeah. all kinds of shock therapies. People so many
2: mistakes. Oh. But it's interesting. His book illustrates the either or thinking mm. of biology versus psychotherapy. Yes. You are not alone is a both end book. Eric Smith is an expert, and so is the director of the National Institute of Mental Health. That the man who invented motivational interviewing, Bill Miller, is in this book. But so is a family who found a way to communicate. This is a both-and book all the way. And Jeff's book does illustrate the black and white thinking that psychiatry can fall into. Uh, I I know that well from my own travels. But I think Eric's an expert. There's 129 other experts. And then there are actually traditional experts. Yeah. And they're all part of what might help a person.
0: What is else does Bill Miller is an interesting guy to I me. Mean, I've heard him speak a few times. What what kind of what's he talking about in the book?
2: So, uh, in chapter 4, I have America's most famous traditional experts answer the most common questions I get. So, I have bipolar disorder. Do I really have to take these meds forever? Mm. Well, why don't I ask the king of bipolar disorder who has done 400 studies at Harvard? Wow. Andy Nirenberg, a lovely human being. I asked the question, my family member doesn't want help. How do I approach them? So I reached out to Dr. Bill Miller, who, of course, invented motivational interviewing. And he discusses how the writing reflex how telling a person what they should do results in the opposite response. So I just went through how do I become a peer specialist? What is the role of cognitive behavior therapy? So I had Judith Beck, whose father invented Cognitive behavior therapy. Aaron Beck passed away last year. Mm. Answer that question. Bob Drake, is mental health, is work a mental health intervention? He invented supported employment. So, part of the point, Mary Ellen Copeland, the Wellness Recovery Action Plan, what is it? I wanted the alternative title for the book was The People's Guide to Mental Health Mm. uh, after Howard Zinn. But I thought You Were Not Alone was more central to the problem of shame and isolation that I experienced. And many people have dealt with.
0: So you experienced as a family member, and then we've Very also much, yes. and we've highlighted a couple of times here how brains heal other brains. Whether it's the enlightened judge, whether it's the care empathic attuned therapist, whether it's the diagnostician who's carefully listening and attuning, or the peer support, it's it's we don't make enough of that.
2: Yeah, that's exactly right, and uh, that's why the book was a joy to write. It's a book I've been working on for 15 years. And then with COVID, Dr. Drew, Mm. society came to me. Mm. Society wanted to talk, what helps people? How do you deal with isolation? What happens if you relapse with your addiction? What if your family can't talk about it? I'm not especially good looking, unlike you, Dr. Drew. So I was on CNN two nights in a row. They don't want to talk to me usually. They want to talk about recovery, what helps people. This is when I realized that book that I'd been sketching out for 15 years—it was showtime. Mm. Because the world, through COVID, as terrible as it was, the silver lining is this is the time for mental health.
0: Well, that's good. I'm, I'm, you're, you're making me. I'm, this is kind of a nice place to sort of wrap up because it's mm. that, that it's making me. I, I've been feeling very overwhelmed and helpless and. Uh, not optimistic as the mental health numbers just accumulate, and while our public health system seems to pay no regard to what they've done. so i'm I'm delighted to hear you say that your sense is that it's it's moving in the right direction.
2: Well, we have to learn from each other. It yeah. still takes ten years to make a child psychiatrist, Dr. Drew. No, It's I a know. decade, I know right? So they're not good that's a long production cycle. yeah. So let's learn from Eric Smith. Let's learn from the hundred and thirty people in this book. They are also experts.
0: One other quick thing about uh, the motivational interviewing, motivational enhancement world: uh, patients, family are always asking me those. I'm sure all of us, all three of us, questions about you know how do I get through to them? How do I get them to fill in the blank? I, I want to test my uh, advice giving and see if you agree with what I what I tell people, which is much like you said that you don't go straight at them. I mean this this sort of uh, daytime television world of so-called confrontation is exactly the wrong thing of what... uh, Correct. Yeah. I mean, it's just the four shields go up and then you can't get through. So what I'm usually advising people do is use sort of what's generally under the umbrella of therapeutic wonderment, like... I'm wondering if you've ever thought about, or why do you think, or, hmm, that's interesting. I wonder why why that happened. And just keep going at it with these sort of wonderment questions. Listening, yeah.
2: open. Yeah. What does the person want? The person wants to sleep better and have a girlfriend. You think they need treatment for major depression. Focus on the sleep and the girlfriend. Wonder about it. It's exactly right. I wonder if it would be easier for you. Yeah. Right. To get yeah. some sleep. Would yeah. you consider? Yeah. Would you consider yeah. A or B? Yeah. No, I don't want to go to see a primary care doctor for okay. sleep. Okay. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, <laughs> will you want to work out with me? Because sleep is good for that. I don't know. Maybe I'll try that. You know, so open-ended questions, non-judgmental, non-blaming. All right. You are partnering with the person. You're sitting on a bus stop with them, looking off into the world together instead of daytime TV. You are depressed. You need help.
0: Don't you see what you're doing to our family? Don't you blah, blah, see blah, what blah, you're blah. doing
2: to the family? Yeah. Uh, you know, Bill Miller, who has written a hundred books and you know, two hundred randomized controlled trials, you know, this way of communication is harder. Yeah. But it's more effective.
0: Well, I it's it it requires practice too. I, I think people yeah. are not accustomed to it and we have to really shine That's a right. bright light on it. Eric, I see you your body reacting to this conversation, so jump in.
1: It, it is very much so. I mean, everything that both of you are saying is resonating with me. I mean, I, I want to circle it back to this book. So it, it, people listening, if you are a peer, if you are a professional, if you're a family member or someone else in and around the mental health or mental illness spaces, please think of this book as a toolbox. It's full of tools. So you heard from me about AOT. As I experienced it, AOT is what I needed and what others like me needed. But AOT is probably not what many others will need because it's not for everyone. We just need to have all the tools we can so we can help as many people as possible. If you want the tool po- toolbox, please consider getting this book.
0: Right. I think that's a perfect place to leave this. It, it is all here. It's uh, it's encyclopedic, right? And uh, it will have something for everyone you'll find yourself in here or your family member in here it's a it's a great place to start and to really get inspired and to get take it back to where we started keep the fight going so you don't give up because the system is difficult it's cumbersome it's it's does everything to not help you but you can the help is there but you have to fight for it and so know that you are not alone gentlemen thank you so much for being here, Ken, it's a pleasure to I don't know if we met in Scotland, but it's a pleasure to spend a little time with you. I hope we'll see each other in person.
2: There was such a crowd around you. I was just admiring you from afar. Oh
0: my god. But please. I was
2: grateful to be in the same space as you. And I also want to thank Eric both for his um you know expertise, leadership, and for entering the mental health field. Yes. Do you know how much he can help people with oh, that experience. I
0: absolutely. He's I
2: mean, lived yes. it. Yeah. He's an expert yeah. in his own lived experience and as a professional. This is where we need to go. We need to support people to learn from their own journeys. And I just think it's great that Eric has done so much in such a short time. Dr. Drew, thank you. Book
0: signings coming up. Do you want to give us any dates or places or anything really quickly?
2: Yeah, there's a website called youarenotalonebook.org. I'm traveling California this week, the week of uh, past Thanksgiving. We have seven stops from Menlo Park to San Francisco to Los Angeles to... Um, you know, Ventura County, San Luis Obispo. Um, this, this is
0: unfortunately going to air a little after that. So let's keep referring them to the website, which is You Are Not Alone book. The book or book?
2: book You Are Not the book. Awesome. Yeah. And they keep updating it.
0: Great. Perfect. And
2: uh, I'm coming to Texas to see Eric Smith on January 24th with any luck There all, you Eric. go. That's we got to a- find a venue, my friend. Let's do it. (laughs) If you if you come up towards
0: Austin, maybe I'll join you guys. But we're coming to Austin. All right. So let's. (laughs) This is where we're coming. Well, and is that where you're going to meet Eric in in Austin?
2: Well, that's where um, I happen to be in Austin for another Nami reason, and Nami Austin is going to host a little book event. So I'd be honored if you would come. All right.
0: So let's get that date on the calendar, Eric. Maybe you can drive the hour up from San Antonio and join us. (laughs) I'm there. I'm there. Thank you. All right, gentlemen. Thank you so much, Uh, and for everyone, we'll see you next time